Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and, uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a f***ing shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their f***ing houses for f***ing years. OK, lads, so we have a great show lined up today. We have Conor Miner coming to us from New Zealand. We have Barry Solon coming to us from London. Um, and we have Niall Donoher coming to us from Leash. Um, he's going to talk to us about the Do It For Dan um, campaign. His son, obviously, Dan Donoher. Um, before we get to that, lads, it seems like it's Groundhog Week where we talk about um, what's going to happen with the championship. So the latest on this, Conan, is that the government have confirmed there'll be no mass gatherings over 5,000 people to be licensed before September. So there's no Winter County Games before September. There possibly could be club games before September. <laughs> Pretty much the same as what we talked about last week. <laughs> they could probably have Derry v Leash games if it's gatherings over 5,000. Mm. We'll be all right. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was, th- I was thinking League of Ireland soccer can start back up straight away then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're delighted. They're in the, they're in the sweet spot there. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's, it's what we what we already knew, I suppose. That's just confirming it now. And it's going to be interesting because when I saw that report, when it, you know, the fact that they're actually stating that, you know, they didn't feel like they had a state that the gallons over 5,000 would be banned. It seemed to me that maybe now they're going to start thinking about loosening things up over the next few months, you know, but banning that top tier of 5,000 people. Yeah. You know. But I, here's the thing. Here's the thing I don't understand, Connor. So say you have a packed Semple Stadium with 50,000 people and somebody in the stand has the, the coronavirus. And they give it to somebody, like 14 other people in the stand, right? And then you have another one that's allowed go ahead, say, in Connellet Park in Kildare in Newbridge, and it's less than 5,000 because that's the capacity. And there's there's 3,000 sitting in the stand. And the same person sitting in the middle of the stand gives it to 14 people around them. What is the, how are five, how is a gathering of 
5,000 people. I know you're not a medical expert here, but of course, <laughs> not an easy question. But I'd like to get Simon Harris on the phone here and say, here, buddy, there are lots of 18 other, other coronaviruses. And number two, why, what the hell is the difference between 5,000 and 50,000? Let's Connor answer it, will you? I want to answer from Connor here. <laughs> I was about to say, do you really want to get Simon Harris on the phone after what he said yesterday? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I think in this case, I could be wrong, but I think in this case is what the, the reason that it's 5,000 is that because uh, the government has to obviously plan, know that these people are planning, like at various events, sporting organizations, et cetera, are planning for licensed events that have to involve the HSE and the government with various planning protocols and stuff like that. So they know, for example, that like, say, MCD are, are organizing a lot of festivals over the summer that are going to have more than 5,000 people. So they have to know in advance. They have to call it now as opposed to waiting till closer to the likes of Electric Picnic or something like that or Body and Soul. So at least they know that, that they can plan in advance. And I think that I think that's the, the GA kind of comes into that because there's going to be some, obviously some games, maybe not Derry Leash, but some games that are going to be over 5,000 people. So I think that's it. But again, just to clarify, as you said, Wally, you have to make this abundantly clear that I am no medical expert so that's just my own opinion yeah that's all your own opinion I'm not sure you really answered my question anyway so like I mean you just kind of <laughs> typical politician speak from Connor <laughs> yeah 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 Simon Harris give you a job yeah that's what you get when you get politicians on the show here they won't give you a straight answer so Will O'Donoghue was talking anyways and he was like you know most people are against the behind closed doors and you know, it is still a risk to players. And Alan Milton admitted that they've barely even considered it. But Will O'Donoghue made a good point in saying, given the lack of entertainment in people's lives at the minute, I'm sure games will give an awful lot um, to a lot of people who are isolated at home. It could be something to look forward to and read about in the papers. I'm sure if it was safe to do so and everybody's health was not at risk, I can't see why fellas wouldn't want to get back training and get back playing as an outlet. So he's making the point, it's good for players as an outlet. Um, Connor, it also would give us some bloody entertainment. It would give us on the show something to talk about. That's just a selfish kind of thing to say. But even like show three matches without these nostalgia matches, which are great. But even if it's behind closed doors and the spectacle might not be as good as it was, it still gets people talking about it. And, you know, you read about it and you look forward to your county playing and other counties playing. I think that's what we were talking about last week is that like when you're faced with the reality of having no championship at all or having championship behind, behind closed doors, what would you prefer? And I think the longer that we go on without any games at all, that people are thinking, Jesus, a behind closed doors option wouldn't be that bad at all. Do you know what I mean? But not to be like, not to be a wet blanket on it again, but just even listening to Tony Holland talking about it last night. And I think he was asked specifically about sport coming back and that, you know, somebody asked him about maybe the difference between, you know, a crowd of over 5,000 people and maybe club games that obviously wouldn't have that many people. But the, the, the big thing here, I suppose, is the, is the risk isn't just limited to people attending events. It's the, the risk of those taking part that has to be considered. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, the players that might be, you know, in close contact with people and close contact with medical teams and management and stuff like that. And then the risk of them bringing it back to their family. So yeah. you know, it's just yeah, all that has to be considered. But right, what, what, what kind of hit me during the week was that like, you know, while, while the announcement was inevitable, it's just when something is set in stone, you know, it really just kind of gives you a dose of, dose of reality. It's a real hard reality check. So you're looking ahead to the summer and you're thinking no GA championships and no festivals and all that, that sort of thing. So it's a hard thing to take. But hopefully what Will talks about, to sound on a positive note, and that like once these 
broader cultural measures that Tony Holden, including sport, are considered for after the 5th of May, there might be a chink of light in the possibility of club games or even, you know, behind closed doors games coming back. Exactly. And like, I mean, the club games should all be televised, at least. They should cut deals here, Conan. So like, I mean, there's plenty of club games doing the rounds. Oh, yeah. So how often do we need to watch club games in October and talk about how great it is that they're on TV and everyone gets invested? And like the Dublin quarterfinal, Nafina against Ballyboden, I think every single person watched that, you know, because yeah. it was a good game and it was a big game. But it just shows there there is appetite, especially when there is no county games. But I, I, I sort of laugh sometimes, you know, like you mentioned being selfish. Like we do want it from an entertainment point of view. But I don't know if you read Wayne Rooney's column a few weeks back and he was talking about like the English Football League just sort of plowing ahead and trying to keep going he was like the players didn't want to play they were hearing all these stories about the virus spreading and they didn't want to put their families at risk and there's probably going to be that element as well like even if it becomes safe for if it does become safe for 30 people they gather on a pitch like you know do all the players want to be the first ones to go ahead and do that yeah no exactly somehow I don't think Wayne writes that column himself now but that's just uh, that's just yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Blaine Hughes wants the league to be finished anyway which is no surprise considering how well Armagh are doing in it he says it's frustrating especially where we're sitting in the league table we're trying to push on and get promotion it's frustrating the way the league ended and think the game should be played I don't. I know there'll be a backlog for the championship then but the league should be finished he says um, which I can completely understand Blaine but like the league is not a high priority even no matter how much Blaine wants to get into Division 1 kind of it's like a Liverpool fan, isn't it? Just trying to get the, the title <laughs> yeah. under the belt. And like, I'm, the, I'm the Villa fan at the other side going, no, no, call it off. It's, it's done. It's no point in playing on. It's just everybody's selfish interest coming into it now. It is. Boys, I'll tell you one thing. This is one of the best quotes I've read in a long, long time. This is Michael Murphy, and it's in the Examiner today. So he's talking about the coronavirus, and he's talking about frontline healthcare staff and the risks associated with them. What a great job that they're doing. And, you know, basically the pandemic and how serious it is and everything. And then he's, this is his quote. He says, it really hit home with me. I always, took a, I always look at my life as football being the be-all and end-all. This probably is one of the occasions in my whole life where I realised that maybe there's something every bit as important. So, like, I mean, I just think this is almost like the, the famous quote that football isn't a matter of life or death, it's more important. So all this serious shit and people... Um, dying and the whole world being in lockdown, it's every bit as important as you can get. It's, not, it's not, more, not more important, it's every bit as important. I read it and I laughed. I said, that's absolutely brilliant. That's a famous, that's a famous quote. <laughs> to, to be fair to Michael as well, it's like, it's, I'm glad to see that every GA player of like I, I've like you read about had that perspective. I mean, like some of them are missing out on what may, might be the best year of their career or whatever, but they just know that in the grand scheme of things, it's not about them. It's that the, it's that the people, it's about the people who are front and center of this fight. And it's good to see somebody as high profile as as Michael Murphy just come out with something as as straightforward and as you know as important as that. Yeah, profound, isn't it, uh, Conan? <laughs> yeah, I remember um, Barry McGoldrick actually did have a profound one. He wasn't saying that some like that saving lives is almost as important as football. He was talking about <laughs> going to a county final with uh, Owen Rua and you know so nervous. He'd been building up there for weeks. They're all on the bus, stone quiet, and 
as they were driving through the bog side and there just these lads chucking stones at each other and stuff. And geez, these boys don't even know there's a game going on, let alone care about it. Like, you know, and then suddenly that was a, a good sort of release for him to think this isn't life or death. And they just went out and played the game and they won their first championship. But yeah, almost as important as football, those, those frontline front workers. Absolutely brilliant. Right, lads. So we know lots of GA players have opted out to travel this year and to get an idea of what it's like. Connor Mina joins us all the way on the line from New Zealand. How's it going over there, Connor? Uh, it's actually not too bad, Colin. Um, you know, if if any place kind of seems to have a grasp on it, New Zealand seems to. Um, very much under lockdown rules, similar to at home. So it's kind of put a bit of a, a go slow or a damper on the travel plans, but um, it could be in worse places too. Well, that's the thing. New Zealand have handled it really, really well. And your lock- I was reading your lockdown ends on the 27th of April. So you're counting down the days, I presume. Counting the days down. Yeah, we're moving from, they have like alert status levels here. So we're moving from level four down to level three for initially two weeks then anyway. But uh, from a social perspective, it doesn't actually mean that much. Um, level three just means some businesses can reopen, like uh, some okay. maybe not public-facing businesses, like construction can go back to work, and online deliveries for retail brands and stuff like that can kind of come back into action. But there'll be no cafes really open. The takeaways will reopen and stuff like that, so we might be able to get a dirty chipper, all right. But um, <laughs> other than <laughs> but other than that, uh, from a social perspective and for me, for someone who's not working, uh, not much will change. I kind of still be. Especially distancing and pretty much staying at home as much as possible. Yeah, once you can get a pie and chips over there, you'll be okay, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, get something just to kind of warm the cockles of the heart. Yeah, exactly. So where are you staying? Because I was thinking anyone traveling, staying in hostels, like that would be a breeding ground, would be, it's probably the highest risk. Like nursing homes in Ireland are going crazy. Hostels will be, multiply that by 10. Exactly, yeah. And usually there's mayhem on top of that. I mean, at least in, and in Mr. Nome, you can you don't need to worry about people jumping around from room to room or, or partying in the middle of the night when they're not supposed to, whereas hostels seem to be known for that. But um I'm actually staying with some friends over here. Uh they've been very good and they've put me up. There's a there's a few girls in an apartment here and one of the lads as well. And staying with them for for the lockdown uh, period here. So it's all right. We've a nice little bubble there. It's kind of just like a bunch of friends. So you don't even have to worry about kicking off with your parents or fighting with your brother and sister like you would at home. So it's pretty easy going. Yeah. So where were you? Like you left last November. What have you done since November? And when did this kind of start getting real for you when you had to kind of plan out what you were going to do? Um, yeah, it, it got real, uh, I, I guess, very quickly towards, it was kind of coming towards the end of my travels. Um, anyway, I left, I actually left uh, just in October. I had gone for three weeks. I went to Canada and then hit Colombia for a couple of weeks. And then I flew back to All Star Awards. Um, and then I flew back to Colombia after that and did another couple of weeks there and then kind of worked our way down around the Amazon. So went to Ecuador and the Galapagos and then went to Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina and Brazil. And that kind of ended our South American trip then. And then flew to New Zealand for a couple of weeks and then went to Australia and was in Melbourne for two weeks. And I started to kind of get real then the numbers were starting to increase in Ireland and I guess it's only when it was hitting home that you kind of started to recognise that this was a, a real situation up to that point it was kind of off in a different land that you didn't really have to worry about too much um, 
been completely selfish. That was kind of how, how I felt anyway. And then when I was in Sydney, I was back with Darren McVitie, who I had been traveling with, and his sister. She lives there, um, and her boyfriend. And we were just kind of chatting to home a bit. And it was that, you know, people were being told to work from home. And, you know, from chatting to my own family, then it became real. And you kind of saw the way things went in Ireland, that it was about to happen here too. The numbers weren't the same, but you could kind of tell that flights were going to be slowing down and you weren't going to be able to move as freely as you could. Uh, so I jumped back to New Zealand um, just before lockdown. Uh, and I got locked in somewhere where I was just on a holiday visa. Because uh, I only had 60 days left in Australia and I didn't know what was going to happen on a visa. Okay. So I jumped back to New Zealand. I jumped back to New Zealand, got a 12-month visa here um, so I can kind of sit this out for, for as long as I need to. Um, right. And, you know, once it, it like literally once you're in Sydney, you kind of hit and it was day by day, it seemed to escalate. And I was like, okay, I better make a move on this now before I get locked in. And I think it was, you know, two days after I got here that New Zealand closed the borders. So it was just in time that I got back across. Jeez, you were lucky. Yeah, I didn't realise you left with Darren McVitie. Did we? We tra- You were travelling together. Yeah, yeah, we did South America together, and then from Rio he went straight to Sydney, and I hit New Zealand for a couple of weeks, and then I caught up on him again when I went back in Sydney. And then the plan was for us to, you know, he, he was going to set up in Sydney for a while. I kind of hadn't decided that I was going to bounce around. Then we were going to do a bit of the east coast of Australia. And then do New Zealand maybe for a month in a camper van and then kick on and maybe just continue to follow the summer because we became fond of the heat and maybe go back to the States for, for the summer up there rather than have the winter season down here. Well, that's the thing. It will even go well, out to the States. Yeah, it's all gone up in the air. Even going to the States for the summer to play a bit of football and make a few quid and keep your travels going, you know, that option's gone now. Yeah, yeah, well, that was an option. I mean, we kind of hadn't decided what we were going to do. It was kind of nice to get a break from football for a while. Um, I know it's obviously a lot more relaxing space than it is at home, but we were flirting with the idea of maybe going there, seeing a bit of sun, seeing a bit of football, getting the eye back in before we went home again. But um, obviously that's up in the air. And look, it, putting a dint in our travel plans is probably the, the least um, or the, the least worrying thing that's happening at the minute. So we can't really complain too much. We still got a good period traveling at that um, and sitting still for a while. It's you know the worst thing that's happening in the world right now. But yeah, yeah no, no. change our plans slightly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I didn't realise you got as much travelling in, so you're kind of lucky. And in in a weird way, you're kind of lucky in that you won't have missed any football at home either by the looks of things. I know, yeah. I feel so selfish saying it to be honest. Because <laughs> like you know, like leaving work was one thing, you know, I can always go back. Um and leaving the family, they're still gonna be there. But the last string, I guess, or the last yeah, the last string that had to be cut was was leaving the cabin panel. Now, I let Mickey know good and early. I had flirted with the idea of actually travelling last year. And then after chatting to Mickey for a long time about it, um, you know, said I'd stay on once more. Uh, having Monaghan and Breffley Park in the first round is always something that you want to play anyway. So that was a, yeah. a pull in staying for championship last year too. Um, and then I told Mickey after the season, you know, I thought about it for a few weeks. And I was like, look, I think I'm going to go away again. And then met him a couple of more times just before I, I actually did leave. Uh, so it was very hard to leave that and you know it's I don't know what's harder seeing them do poorly is is devastating you know the first game against Armagh was really hard me and Dara were sitting in Rio trying to listen to us and follow it on Twitter um, and we weren't enjoying it at all I don't think we spoke for about six hours to each other after the game and then seeing them do well is obviously great and the lads are buzzing and they're doing well but then you want to be part of that as well um, so it was it was hard 
to to see that on both sides. You know, you want to be there, you want to be enjoying the victories with the lads, but when they're losing, you kind of want to help them and you feel guilty for not being there. Yeah, but yeah, now, look, obviously I've nothing, nothing, nothing's happening, and I feel guilty that you know, I feel guilty that I'm you know, not missing any football, like, and it's it's good that I'm not, I mean, I didn't want to miss any football, but, you know, it's not for the right reasons that it's not happening now that I'm not missing it. Yeah, look, there's no doubt it's a roller coaster of emotions when you're away and you're not playing and you you want them to do well, but you don't want to miss out on it, so you don't, your head is all over the place, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now, don't get me wrong, I mean, I was completely with the lads, I wanted every victory. Um, and after the first game, I mean, the, the feeling of, because we've been there, I mean, we had a very poor result against Tyrone last year in the championship. And I know what that dressing room's like after those games. And that was what the lads were like after the first round of the league this year. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone, um, especially my teammates. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was really rooting for them. And the thought of potentially playing a tier two championship next year if I was home was something that wasn't appealing to me either, to be honest. Yeah, no. Come here, poor Mickey Graham. Like, I mean, you, you had the conversation. I'd say he was probably expecting it with you, like you said, you had thought about it before. Then for you to go with Dara, your two best players from last year, and then the Killian Clark to take a break for a year as well. Like, I mean, God help the poor man. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just unfortunate on Mickey. And I mean, Mickey did great things, obviously, the year before. Yeah. Um, it just, it kind of got, it just unfortunately came to the point that myself and Darren and Killian had played a lot of football, but we kind of played it all together. I mean, we were all the same age coming up through minor number 21. And as a result, like, we're all a very tight group of friends, which meant that, you know, when one of us was going traveling, it was likely that, you know, me and Darren were going to go together because we got on so well. You know, you might hear people going traveling and going with their friends. So, you know, because we were playing together so long, we are each other's best friends. Like, yeah. Um, you know, Killian, Killian flirted with the idea as well, but just work took a priority um, with him. And it was just unfortunate that it happened to coincide the time or the year me and Dara were going. And then, of course, Key and Mackie as well, um, having to hang, or deciding to hang up his boots. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. was another big loss to the dressing room. So it is, like you do feel for Mickey, but like he's shown and the lads have shown on the results when they bounce back, they're still fit to hold their own. And hopefully that's, you know, when football does resume, they can continue to do that and maybe there'll be room for a couple of us back in the panel in the next couple of years. Is there a kind of a, a, a determination to win an Ulster, um, Connor? You know, considering the four under-21s in a row, you were on the one in 2014, so you were in the 27 category, but the 11, 12 and 13 are 28, 29, 30. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, there's not many years left for that group of, of players to, to win something. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess the, the average age for intercounty players is getting younger and younger every year. I mean, when you, I, I know when I was 21 and 22, you know, you're kind of looking at the 27 to 30 year old lads with the older lads in the panel, but I certainly don't feel old. Um, you know, maybe my ankles do after some games and I can't speak for all the rest of the lads, but, but I'm sure they're the same. You know, you kind of feel that you can play forever sort of thing. Um, and from, you know, particularly now with GA released a couple of games there on the website uh, of old All-Ireland Finals. And I know that a load of counties as well, like Cavan are putting up old games on their Twitter and Facebook and Trimgoon, the club there, are putting up old games as well. And just when you're away and you're seeing them games and you know the feelings that you had while you were playing and those, like well, what people are going through, you just, you want to be back there. You want to be playing there forever. Like, yeah. I think there there is the determination there. I mean, we hadn't been to the final in so long and getting there last year kind of gave us a taste of what we thought it was going to be like. 
and we would always heard how good it was and we experienced the underage all right but you know underage compared to senior they're just they're different levels not just in terms of playing but in terms of the feeling and you know the atmosphere and the day that's in it and actual achievement in itself um, I know that getting to the Ulster final last year absolutely made it harder to leave the panel again because you're like you know we got so much closer than we had that you know can we just bring out you know one more step again the next year um, and I don't I don't see lads losing that interest yeah, yeah. I the, the Cavan supporters are, are crazy, aren't they? They're so desperate for success because of Cavan's history. Like, we, we look back last week on the show at the 97 Ulster final, and I was reading one of the players said uh, when the final whistle went, it was like being hit by a herd of buffaloes with the Cavan fans running on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that absolutely crave it. And look, sometimes it makes it difficult as a player because you have an off day and it might be on your back, but you know they don't necessarily mean it, that they're just craving success as as much as the players are, that's, you know, obviously like it's, it's an emotional sport and that's what makes the G as good as it is. I guess everyone's emotions are in it. And when things don't go your way, you do get upset about it as a player or as a supporter. So when things are going well, they're absolutely fantastic to have there as well, because they'll be vocal and they'll be there for you and they're traveling in numbers. And I can only imagine what a swarm of, uh, of having <laughs> apes having ape running on the pitch would be like if we were to achieve that again. <laughs> Career, you probably had your best year last year. Obviously nominated for an All Star, which must have been um, really, really nice. Like, I mean, you're you're playing corner back, but like, you're not an orthodox corner back. In the modern game, there's always a corner forward heads out the field, and that's where you know that's where you become a dangerous prospect because you're a free man. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, when when Mickey or whoever in the management team flirted with the idea of of putting me a cornerback, I'm sure there was people laughing that's not, saying that man hasn't marked anyone in years. But, um, but uh, yeah, look, Mickey found, Mickey found the system and it kind of worked. Um, whether that was picking someone up at times or picking whoever came or picking whoever came in up or floating about and trying to get the ball, whatever it is, I'm happy to do. If if I was to play a corner forward, I'm sure it'll never happen. But I'd happily play there as well. Um, you know, you it's just kind of do you can the team. Were you pick corner forward in one of the under twenty one Ulster finals? Was I seeing? No, you're probably going back the field. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it might have been a junior final, a, a, the Leinster junior final when Calvin played in that in two thousand. All right, well, was that, maybe fourteen as well when I it was lined out at full forward, but it was kind of in floating about getting busy again in the usual places. I don't think they trust me to take too many shots now. I get in trouble when I try one as it is so <laughs> they certainly wouldn't put me in the danger zone too often well you're not bad off the outside of your boot like I mean suppose the whole thing is timing your running like I mean the way the modern game is there's there's always fellas kind of hanging back it's about a matter of waiting for maybe someone to break the tackle and then be on his shoulder is that it yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm glad, I'm glad you said it because I can hold that now for the lads because I'm sure for everyone I kick over, I kick five or six wide. But now that you <laughs> say I'm not bad off the outside of the boot column, I'll make sure I hang that over the lads now for the next time they take it to me. <laughs> okay, fair play to you. Come here. So what's the plan now? Because are you, like, I mean, are you done when this whole thing finishes? Are you back for next year? Like you could be back for this year potentially um, with Kevin if, if something happens in yeah. September, I mean, October. Yeah, look, to be honest, I, I haven't a clue, uh, Colin. This, like, I had planned to travel for another while and then maybe see out the summer until August or September. But after that, it was a bit up in the air anyway. Um, my initial intention was to go home. But the lifestyle out here, you know, granted, it's very different now given 
COVID-19. But up to that point, the lifestyle in New Zealand and in, in Sydney is something I like. Um, I had thought about maybe moving to Sydney before. And then I said, you know, what, I'll just travel. I'll get it out of the system. And I'll only miss one year instead of moving there and working for a couple of years. But I don't know. Um, it's, it's something I kind of have to... Uh, think about now over the next couple of months I've got time to think about it now I've literally got nothing to do but sit and think about it um, so I'll do that over the next while uh, the only thing in truth that would bring me home is is playing football for, for Cavan for Um I could get a job working in what I do in Sydney there's good tech companies there as well um, and it's just the thought of missing more than a couple of years I mean you said it yourself 27 now if I miss the year, I'm 27. If I miss another year when I'm 28, after having two years out and trying to break back into a county team at 29 or 30, it's going to be a little bit more difficult than just taking maybe a year or eight or nine months out. Because to be fair, the management are very good. They're still sending on gym programs if I look for them and running programs so that I'm not going to come home and forget how to tie my boots. Yeah. Um, but it's just, you know, if, if you were to tell me now that... Um, you know, inter-county football isn't going to happen or club football isn't going to happen for another 12 months, then I'd stay here for another 12 months. Um, yeah. Whereas if it, was going to, if it was going to kick off again properly um, in January, then I'd probably be looking to come home later in the year um, because I don't want to miss much. But, you know, if I weigh it up and weigh off the lifestyle versus GA uh, life, then it's, it's just something I've got to think about. To be honest, I haven't made up my mind yet. I don't know. I, ch- I change my mind every week. You know, last week I was adamant I would stay and this week I'd be like, all right, you know what, maybe I'll just go home. I, you know, I can always travel, you know, for a month, a year or something and see where I want to see, but it's hard to know. Yeah, no, it definitely is. There's no doubt about that. So like, I mean, um, oh yeah, Kabir, another one I wanted to ask you before I let you go is uh, any more drunken tattoos with Darren McVitie? You haven't had enough time together um, <laughs> traveling now. So well, tell us about the first one and have you had any more in the last two months? <laughs> Jesus, I don't know how you heard about this. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was... Uh, it was back in maybe the summer of, which is must have been the summer of 2015. Myself and Darrow were over in, in Boston for the summer, and we were doing a bit of, a little bit of work and a little bit of football, but mainly just having a good time. Um, and we we went out one weeknight that we weren't particularly supposed to, and landed into construction site the next morning. And the the foreman was the, I think he was the chairperson or was involved in the club, and he wasn't too pleased. He was just like, "Look, lads, go home. Like, there's no work for you today." So on the way home, we stumbled across it was about six or seven in the morning and uh, stumbled across a tattoo parlor and sat outside until it opened so I decided I wanted a tattoo I was going to get it down my forearm actually and luckily they seen the state and these two pasty Irish lads coming in the door and they were like this is your first tattoo isn't it and I was like yeah <laughs> you out last night and we were like we were and they were like okay maybe get it somewhere that not everybody will see it when they meet you so um, decided then that we would get uh, Dara's favourite emoji tattooed um, on my ass which uh, which I regret every single day since to be honest <laughs> what's it's, the emoji? It's, it's fine it's, oh it's like you know one of those monkey emojis where he covers his oh mouth. yeah 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 uh, it's terrible to be honest it's, it's, <laughs> unfortunately it's quite big and it's coloured in and everything like it's a state of a thing I forget I have it and then like 
someone will see it in the showers after a game and we'll just be a state of that kind. Well, I cannot believe none of uh, the no. lads, I can't believe none of the Cavan lads have taken a picture of that and made this uh, made this public in the last uh, <laughs> few years. Oh, I don't think anyone wants to see my white ass anywhere on social media, to be honest. <laughs> A classic, classic. Come here, Connor. I'll let you go. Thanks very much for taking the call. I will talk to you again. No, no, call him. Keep safe. Take it easy. I don't really know Jim anymore. Me and him were like best friends when, when we played, you know. He's seen the light of Jesus and... Uh, I'm still like fighting the devil, you know. So Andy Moran um, did an interview with EJ Menswear, friends of mine in Sligo, actually, EJ Menswear. I don't often give them a shout, a shout out. And he was talking about this kind of light bulb moment when he realised that he wasn't fit at all and it came on an All-Stars tour to Kuala Lumpur when he saw Cork uh, footballers working out. Um, like 2000's pretty late, I was thinking. And he says, um, I told you about the Cork lads. When they start running at Croke Park, it was all over for me. My career was really decent in the National League, decent in the Connacht Championship, but to get to Croke Park, a waste of time. Um, Connor didn't realise it took till 2010 for Andy Moran. Like, I mean, weights were on the go since 2001, 2002. Yeah, and Andy, even at that stage, I, I would have figured that Andy was known as a kind of a, like he owns a gym now, but even going back in, back in the day, he was, would have been very dedicated. I would have thought anyway, and into his fitness and stuff like that. But uh, the best thing about that, is that, uh, do you know, like, not only did he realise that he wasn't fit enough, but I think it helped him realise that he wasn't a middle eight player as well, do you know? Like, yeah. Andy, Andy was playing, Andy played between the half back line and the half forward line for Mayo, and it wasn't until he was 2011, which would he would have been around 27, 28, that he realised his best position was as a, was as a ball playing, or, sorry, as a ball winner in the full forward line, and we know what he kind of went on to, um, went on to after that but it was like I just I found that honestly really refreshing that like he he was willing to admit that when it came to Crow Park that he you know forget about him and that's it like Andy had been nominated for an all-star 2009 scored that famous goal against Dublin in Crow Park uh, at 2006 as well so it was just it was really interesting to hear that somebody who's who had spent half their career and then finally decided that they weren't fit enough. And that's the thing. And just uh, uh, things I remember from playing in Croke Park, especially where there's big crowds. I don't know. I think it's to do with the crowd or maybe it's nerves, but you feel like you've done no training all year. Your legs are dead, you know, and you're wondering what the hell's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I flat? And I put it down to the crowd. Like you come out of it, but you know, he, he was saying I played in the number 12 position, that Brian door position where you had to cover all the ground. I physically wasn't able to do it. And it, that's it, Colin. Like, I mean, managers putting players in positions that they're not physically able to do doesn't make any sense. No, but I was wondering how, how modest he was being as well, but maybe the cool park factor does come into it. Like, because I, I think I told the story before of like being in Jordan's time with Andy Moore and like asking him, could I come along to a few gym sessions with him? And the stuff he was doing was animalistic. Like, you know, I, I was, it's all relative, <laughs> but I was going back to the club to be like, lads, you aren't training hard enough. You want to see what Andy Moore was doing. <laughs> you know, so much so that everyone still slags me to this day about Andy Moore. But, um, 
Yeah, like you know, but maybe he just wasn't. Was he being modest, or maybe he wasn't doing that much? Like you know, I'm obviously a club player and thought this was a lot, but the crew park thing I think certainly is interesting. Like I'd say your legs probably just feel heavy and your energy sapped. It. Like are you warming up differently when you're there? Or are you doing? Are you expending more energy in the changing room? Uh, not really. Like I mean, there's the warm up rooms, but you'd always only be limbering up there. I just felt I I I I think it was the energy from the crowd. It just made your legs. <laughs> A little bit dead, or maybe then when you're just feeling nervous for like two hours nonstop, has that an effect on your, you know, your energy levels? But it does go, it does go when you're when when the the match starts. But when you're doing those kind of runs out on the field, you're like, holy shit, what's wrong? What's wrong with me here? Yeah. It's not it's not a nice it's not a nice feeling. But then, like I mean, there's so much emotions going on, you know, like when there's a big crowd in Crow Park. So I think it's. I think it's put it's put down to that. But then again, like if we look at um, Andy Moran's uh, physiological makeup, physiological makeup, like I mean, he's not built for no, yeah. Brian Doerr type thing. Like I mean, he's stockier and he's better at the short kind of um, kind of sprints. Interestingly, he put Lee Keegan Connor down as the best player that ever played for Mayo. Now I hate this stuff. This is like picking a team of the decade. It's like picking the best player from another county that you'd love to sign. You know, these more message board topics, but still, Lee Keegan is the best player for Mayo. You're our Mayo correspondent. I'll, I'll throw this one to you. Yeah, well, uh, like, I, like I assume Andy was just asked the question, had to kind of provide an honest answer as possible. But like, I, to be honest, if when I think about it, I probably have to have to agree with Andy because like Andy, I can only go on what I know. Like, like I, I didn't see the any of the 50 or 51 teams. There's a couple of Mayo players, uh, Tommy Langan and Sean Flanagan on the team in the millennium. But since then, since 51, this is undoubtedly the best Mayo team, uh, let's say, of the the from the first year of the James Horan era, let's say 2011 to to the present time, you know, how many All-Ireland finals got very close. And then it, during that period, Lee Keegan has four All-Stars. He was Footballer of the Year. Um, he, sco- he, play, he scored goals in two consecutive All-Ireland finals. The bigger the occasion, the bigger he got. And he's marked and got the better of some of the best players of the era, whether it's Kieran Kilkenny, Jeremy Connolly, Sean Kavanagh, a few others. So like, I, I'm like yourself, Willie, I don't necessarily like getting into these debates, but if I had to, I probably agree with Andy and with Lee Keegan up there. Yeah, okay. I would. I would probably have to agree with it. it just it, it actually highlights what Mayo are doing to him now as just being practically criminal, Conan. <laughs> yeah, playing it was a man marking cornerback. Um, yeah, like that was so sad, wasn't? It? Remember, like he was getting roasted by Conor Callahan at Crew Park, and then. He just went up and scored a goal. I was like, yes, like that's that's what you yeah, can yeah, do. Yeah, you yeah. seem to do that, and and like every time you think, I'm sure, like when we think of Lee Keegan and we're talking about Crew Park, it's just that that goal, isn't it? When he just came bursting off the shoulder out of nowhere and hit the roof of the net, like that's that's Lee Keegan, and that's what he should be doing every week for me, and what he can do as well. Exactly, exactly. Niall Morgan has been talking about goalkeepers, lads, and he made a good point. He says, as goalkeepers, we need practice. We need people to hit shots at us. You know, it seems basic enough, but he says, um, but we're not allowed to go in twos. I use rebound nets at the house to try and sharpen things up. But with a rebound net, you always know where the ball is coming back to you. Whereas the likes of Conor McManus or Michael Murphy is coming running at you. You're not going to, they're not going to tell you where they're going to kick the ball before they hit it. And it just, when he was saying that, I started thinking of the young fella in his back garden that went viral where he was kicking the ball off the wall and going saving it. Um, I actually brought back memories of doing the same thing when I was a young fella. But like, I mean, it does make it does make sense. Goalkeepers are all about reactions and split seconds, especially for shot stopping. That's definitely one thing that can't be practiced at home, Conan. 
No, it's it's um it's definitely a tough one, but as much as it's a good point from Niall Morgan, and I had thought as well, like you know, surely we could go out in twos now as well, just for somebody to kick the ball back to you. Like there's nothing worse. I've got one ball and I'm kicking it. I'm kicking it wide mostly, but then you're taking me a minute to go get it and then carry it back out. Like if you had someone else just 40, 50 meters away from me doing it, but once one person does that or one one pair does that, then sure it becomes okay for the other person to do it. So it's tough for goalkeepers, but it's tough for everyone, unfortunately, and you're just going to have to grin and bear it now. Going to have to yeah, grin and bear it. He's also talking about it's been it's very difficult. You think maybe you're the fittest you can be, but you're not competing with anybody. And we talked about this this last week as well, and that's what our game is all about. So you think you're fit. Um, people are going mad doing five kilometer runs, but like I mean, you've no way of judging how fit you are, Connor. Well, that's what I was about to say. I said if if Niall Morgan thinks he's the fittest he can be, he needs to do a few of these and put up like he did five k in twelve minutes or thirty minutes, like I'm seeing some people uh, lately. <laughs> World records. Yeah, but I think Connor raised a good point last week. Even when you're even when you're doing stuff like this and you can be setting personal bests and all this sort of stuff as much as you like, but like it doesn't it doesn't recreate. You know, even even if you were doing it alongside somebody in training and not wanting to be the last person that you know that finishes in the drill or trying to trying to beat a guy that's been beating you all year or something like that, you don't get the same competitive element. And like, you know, like I imagine that intercounty footballers, like even club footballers, thrive on that. But intercounty footballers thrive on that competitiveness more than anybody. So like, I I can understand where he comes from, but. Just go out and do a 5k, Niall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, lads, we'll leave it there because I'm delighted to say former Leash Kildare Mayo strength and conditioning coach as well as a load of, load of other professional athletes and he's currently strength and conditioning coach at Arsenal. Joins us on the line now is Barry Solon. Um, Barry, how's it going? Hi, Willie. Yeah, good to hear from you. Um, strange time there, but I'm sure it's the same there in, back home in Ireland as it is there in, in London, yeah. Yeah, no, there's no doubt it's strange times. Come here, we were just talking before you joined the show about Niall Morgan and he was saying it's so difficult. You think you're maybe the fittest you can be, but you're not competing with anybody. And I'd say it's club players, inter-county players, the soccer players you're dealing with over there. You know, you think you're training, but you, you know you, you're not really. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because like, especially in our environment here, when, when you look at the calendar of matches and uh, there's a certain amount that you can, if you take a typical pre-season, there's a, a certain amount you can you can get done. But really it is when you get like a couple of matches under your belt and then fellas get nine or 10 games in that they, they start to feel good, you know? And that would be the same, the exact same home with the GA lads, you know, that get going through the, through the winter months and the National League starts then and probably three or four or five games into that, players start to, to feel really good as well. So when you look at the demands of the games and, and what those players punch out week to week in, in either code, in soccer or Gaelic, it's, that's hard to replicate on your own, yeah. So what should what should lads be doing? I see see more five more five kilometer runs being put up. I'm not sure these are definitely necessarily athletes, but there's some <laughs> record times being put out there. Like I mean, what can, what can you do? What's the best training to be doing for any club player or intercounty player? Yeah, I think uh, a few of them five k times were like the wind at your back downhill on a bike <laughs> from, from, from a few of them I saw. So yeah, um, uh, mostly really I think the, for even for our own lads here at Arsenal or for any of the, the lads at home there, it would be, you're trying to just keep in, in a general shape though, so that when you do go back to training, there's not a massive spike in what your training load would be. 
And if that was a case to happen where, you know, you go all of a sudden from covering, let's say, 20k a week in whatever type of mix that that's in, if it's short sprints or longer runs or whatever, and then you go back to training and all of a sudden that jumps up to 30 or 40k a week, that's a bit of a spike in load for people. So over the course of this type of period now, you know, you're trying to keep people in relatively kind of around 75 or 80% sort of physical fitness. So they have a good dose of high speed run in their system. Uh, they would have a good dose of sprinting and speed type work in their system. And that's, you know, real simple stuff that can be done, but it's just doing the basics really well from that point of view. So while there might be a day where you can do some type of fitness work that have, would have longer two or three minute runs, uh, I would imagine most of the more than our players here are, are lads at home at this stage of the season and they've covered all them bases. So uh, from a speed point of view, we would be getting some good volume of high speed running in, uh, getting some sprinting in. Um, if you look back years ago, I was just reading some research earlier on in the week that there would have been a lockout in the NFL in um, 2011, I think it was. And they had a comparison there on Achilles ruptures for a normal preseason that would be, there might be two to three. And I think then when the players had been away and locked down for a while and they came back, you know, for that preseason when they returned, there was like 11 or 12 of them. So right. again, that's people not, not being ready for what's coming. And I would gather that like when teams do get back, you know, the same as in every sport in the world, coaches and managers and all those people are going to be keen to get as much work done as possible. So how players can kind of be ready for that jump and load is, is a big thing. And if you've gone also from somebody who's used to working or even simple things, been on your feet all day, to now being sedentary on the couch, that's or watching Netflix or getting through a good box set. That's an you know a, a consideration as well. And I know myself now. I have an Apple Watch, and it buzzes every hour to tell me get up now because I'm not you you know not moving as much as I as I usually right. would at work. So that's probably a consideration for people as well, just with keeping speed in their system so it's not just such a, a massive shock to your body when you get back training, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I suppose GA players, they finally get the rest and the downtime that they're always complaining about anyway, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. And I like <laughs> there's a massive part of that probably as well where lad can catch up on a bit of sleep and because if you look at all the travel that goes with it and yeah. they can maybe get, the, get their nutrition in line um, and maybe pick up some cooking skills at home and bits and pieces like that that'll help them I've never cooked as much myself here in the last five weeks as I've ever done so uh, yeah I'm trying to stay away from the fridge at the minute now you know yeah no well, that's hard for everybody it's the, it's the couple of yeah. beers every evening like you're on holidays is what's catching me yeah. yeah, when the sun is shining too, it can be a little bit that way as well. It's tempting. Oh, it's definitely temptation. Come here, Joey Boldridge, you mentioned sprinting there, and he's a physiotherapist. I think he's in with Dublin. He's obviously Dublin, ex-Dublin hurler. He's saying you should use this period of time to clean up injuries and get faster. He's talking about doing a bit of maintenance work, he says, but that's what we're advising a lot of the Dublin lads to do at the moment, the speed stuff you see sprinters do. He's saying that to get ready for championship, you're going to have to build that kind of match fitness up anyways. But while they're to, to improve your speed in this downtime will be more beneficial. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think there's something in that. I think if you take somebody who's used to being like what you classify as like a field sport athlete, like a, a rugby player or Gaelic football or hurler, soccer player, you know, that would be a fair difference in the type of training that they're used to. So I think if, if anyone was going to undertake a, a type of program like that, um, you know, it would need to be very controlled in terms of volume. Like if you watch a sprinter train, you know, they might do an exercise of whatever it be, jumping, hopping, bounding or acceleration work. And they might take two or three minutes in between reps and efforts and things like that. So that will be planned, 
you know, down to the amount of contacts they would have, down to the volume they'd have, down to the meter. So if someone was to do that, you know, that day, like sprinting is a skill, you know, the same as somebody kicking a ball over the bar is a skill. So that's kind of something that really takes, you know, a lot of practice and right. people would need would need to be well exposed to that. So you need certainly a not a problem. Probably yeah, in the coach like, as well, right? You do, yeah, you know, and like no problem doing it if 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 in in that instance that you mentioned that the lads have been used to doing it, well then it, you know it's not going to be much of a change then. But like if you were to know go out there and and get into what like a sprinter might do or a track athlete might do for a session, like you'd you'd know about it getting out of bed in the next morning, you know. So yeah. uh, it's just being you know taking a common sense approach approach with that and just keeping it really simple in terms of volume. And if you look at the the sprint work that a, a Gaelic player might do or a hurler might do in a game, they're a little bit different in terms in terms of distance. But it's just making sure that over the course of this type of what you want to maybe call it an off season type period, is that people do get exposed to speed that when they go back and they have to sprint and train and all of a sudden you haven't got lads popping hamstrings or, or pulling casts and things like that, you know? Right, okay. So your strength and conditioning and you're with Leash when when I was there as well. What do you think like I mean, we know how demoralizing it is when you do your weights and then you get an injury and you can't do them within within three or four weeks you're almost back to where you started which is an awful killer anybody that uh, has done weights so what what about fellas who don't have weights back in their houses like body weight squats they're okay for me but for for like you know the top intercounty players will be doing the squats with a lot of weight on them yeah that's a that's a tough uh, thing to kind of you know, from being on the pitch, if you're sprinting, you're getting like a nervous system type response. So that's definitely something you need. Uh, doing your weights, you get some of that as well. But, you know, depending on your strength level, you know, it's going to be tough for people to to expose themselves to that when they really only have their own body body weight. So in that es- essence, like changing the tempo of exercises can get you a little bit more time under tension. So if somebody was doing a squat or a push-up or a pull-up or whatever it might be, that like eccentric portion of that exercise where, you know, the muscle is lengthening, you know, if you normally come down and go up on a push-up in one second down, one second up, if you can exaggerate that to like three to five seconds down, one second up, right. you're getting a little bit of eccentric stress through the muscle. And that has been shown to be really good in kind of maintaining lean mass, even when people haven't got the access to weights. But again, after a couple of weeks, that wears thin. So I, I know in some cases, like people have been raiding gyms and trying to get hold of the set of dumbbells or a few kettlebells or a bar or whatever it might be. So if people can get access to that, that makes a, that would make a big difference, you know? Right, right. Okay. So like, I mean, you were with Mayo. Here's a question I always wondered to ask you. So like, I mean, we know Dublin, like their strength and conditioning seems to be at a really, really high level. And Mayo were the one county who could stay with them. You know, like how much of that was strength and conditioning and how much of it was Mayo just for a bloody good, you know, a bloody good team or how much does strength and conditioning play into it? Yeah, I would think the first thing you have, in, if you look at Mayo or Dublin, you know, the secret to having a good team are, is having good players. And the, both groups there, if you were to compare them, like a couple of tight games, obviously there over the years, but yeah, there was exceptional athletes in, in both them teams. And the same in Mayo, there was like, very good players and some very good athletes down there. And really from a, from a strength and conditioning point of view at that stage, you're, you're trying to get lads fit and healthy and you're just trying to make them as available as possible to, to the management team so that when, you know, they sit down to pick the team, they have as many of the lads available as possible and you can put their best foot forward, you know? Right. And yeah, probably if you look at Mayo, when they would have played Dublin too, as an example, Mayo, I think in 2017, we played 10 games in the championship. So... 
by the time we got to the All Ireland final in, in mid September, lads had great match conditioning. Yeah, you know, and that that's not something you can really replicate in training. That wasn't something I'd done from a strength conditioning point of view. Far from it, you know. You're trying to nearly at that point of view stay out of the way and let the lads recover, and that would have been great work then from a medical team and the coaching team behind the scenes, keeping people ready, um, you know, getting the load of training correct between games, and then just building the lads out. And the more games they got under their belts, you know, the better they got. And if you were looking at the team then across that season, you're probably looking at. Um, I think we played Roscommon in the replay of the quarterfinal. We played. We had two games against Kerry, and we played um, Dublin then in the final. And you basically had four games in Crow Park in six weeks. And like, even the difference in the, surf, the surface in Crow Park to get exposure to that. Like, I feel myself just looking in from the outside. I remember turning in or tuning in to watch the the first round of the National League this year. Mayo were playing Donegal up in Donegal, and Dublin were playing Kerry in Crow Park, and it was like watching two different sports. You know, from the speed of play, the yeah. speed of the game, all that type of stuff. So just getting regular exposure to that, that obviously brings skill level up then and fellas are match fit then and match sharp and, you know, the really players want to play, you know, and uh, that's probably a small detriment to the of the current system that there's probably a little bit of too long a gaps between games, you know. Yeah, to keep them primed, yeah. How how has it changed yeah. the last ten years, uh, Barry, the strength and conditioning? Like is it moved more towards power now rather than muscle? No, it's our, I'm not sure where it was initially. I just think there's been a continual evolution in the understanding of the game, really. And I think you're trying to, if you probably look back at the initial stages of, of the GA, when GA teams were looking for a little bit of, of expertise on the fitness end of it, they probably would have looked to a rugby environment and you would have had people there working in the provinces. So the likes of Aidan O'Connell would be an example that's gone in as you know the high performance manager now in Cork. But back in the day, Aidan was along with Munster and he would also have been along with Cork in, say, 2011 when, or 2010 when they won the All-Ireland. So they probably went to get... Uh, you know, a little bit of influence from outside. And then Aidan, obviously, as an example, would have a good understanding of Gaelic himself. So I think in that realm, it's just become a little bit more commonplace. Um, there's been a better connection between what's needed in the gym and what's needed on the pitch. Um, and then getting probably the, the load of training correct now, because most teams have like GPS units and bits and pieces like that to be able to track the training load of lads. And it just helps make things a little bit more accurate, you know. But you still come back to to doing the basic things well and like you know sometimes I think of my job you know you see these roles of like head of performance or or head of strength and conditioning or whatever it might be like I would say in many cases you're the head of common sense you know and that's right. really what you're what you're trying to do is just to get the basics of that's what the sport is and this is how we need to train then to reflect to prepare for it you know Right okay so you come here you're over at Arsenal since 2015 how did you end up there you're over the first team now uh, that's correct, yeah. yeah. So I've been with the first team here now for five seasons, yeah. Uh, it's been a great experience. So, yeah, initially an opening came up here and I had worked, I was working at home at the time actually, in Dublin, and I had previously worked with a company called Athletes Performance, uh, now known as Exos out in the States. So I had worked out there for a while with them and I had then worked with the Poland national team for the European Championships in 2012. So that was kind of through them. And then the opportunity came up at Arsenal in, in 2015. It was kind of through that kind of circle and an interview process and all that that it kind of ended up here now in London, you know? Right. It must be da- must have been daunting walking into that dressing room at the start, was it? <laughs> ah, 
they're all the same really like you know I think no more than a dressing room with your club or a dressing room with a county team or a rugby team that I've been involved with or whatever I think you come across kind of the same if you have 25 or 30 people in there there's sort of the same mix of characters there's loud ones quiet ones there's ones that are keen to work there's ones that need a kick in the bum yeah so <laughs> oh, across, I'm thinking of Ozil now you don't have to <laughs> just, just across all facets I think you, see, you, you tend to see that you know and it doesn't matter what the sport is you tend to have that kind of that kind of blend of different different humans across and it's just kind of working with them then on, on kind of what's a, a square peg for a square hole with them in terms of what they need to play you know Right, and would what they work on be very similar to what you know Gaelic uh, players, hurlers, and footballers would work on, or would there be you know a bit of? I suppose recovery is such a big thing for them, right? Yeah, and like you're probably just taking a simple eighty twenty rule. Like you could say, like you know, everybody has two arms and two legs, and fellas need to be able to sprint and move, and your your body tends to have issues in in similar places. There's probably a couple of unique things like. You know, when you work with boxers or whatever, you need to be very specific with shoulder work. When you work with golfers, you need to be very specific with their back because of how much they play. Same, I had a bit of experience in ice hockey and you tend to have groin and shoulder problems there a lot because of the way they move. So, you know, running and field sport athletes that kick the ball, so GA, AFL, soccer, they tend to have, you know, things that cramp up when, they're, when they cover big distances in games and things that come up there. So it's just preparing the body as well as you can for that. And you have different body types then that you need to deal with differently. And you might have guys then that have like, you know, a 10 or 12 year career under their belt that have had loads of load of them and they just need to be looked after and, and kept healthy. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have guys coming out of an academy system that have, we've a great academy here at Arsenal that just runs a great performance program and a great football program. And we've had a big transfer up into the first team, especially this year for all the years I've been there, like this five or six of the lads that have came through there. So they're actually, in some cases, you know, really well trained because they have a good training age from when they were so young. So it's just keep them developing. But people need different things based on where they are. And then the lads play so much here that, like, recovery is just, you know, a huge thing. Someone puts in a, a big shift in a, a Premier League game on a, on a Saturday or Sunday and you could be anywhere else then again on, you know, a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday night playing a game. So, you know, I think our, our busiest period over the last maybe 18 months is we've had five games in 13 days. Jesus, yeah. Yeah, so that like that's where you might have like a you know, a Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday or something like that, you know, and that can be a bit hectic for fellas, especially for fellas who play like in wider positions that tend to sprint more or tend to cover larger distances, you know, you just need to maybe give them an extra day's recovery here and there and things like that. And that's again when you look at the GA lads there, they just they just don't have that time, you know. That's the problem, I suppose. But then again, for, like Stephen Hunt pointed out before, it's not always easy sitting around doing nothing, trying to recover. You, there's a lot of boredom, I'm sure, kicks in for the for the players over there. And especially, I suppose, now at the moment where they don't have any kind of outlet. Yeah, well, I think they're getting plenty of practice. <laughs> no, anyway. Are you talking to them individually or like, can you even say what you're doing? With, not what you're doing with them, but ah, like, yeah, like, how I do you manage it? Yeah, the same as really... Any, all of the other teams that are they're in, in this bucket, whether you're a Gaelic team or a rugby team or a soccer team, you're like, our lads have a conditioning program now that they're doing. They're trying to keep themselves moving. The same things I mentioned to earlier on there, we're trying to get a, a nice dose of speed work into them. You know, some lads have a pitch near their house that's within close them that they can go and run on quietly. Other lads have been using a park. Other lads have been using treadmills. You know, so we got weights, like there was a big raid on our on our first team gym at the training ground to get weights around the lads' houses and we've delivered all them and 
bits and pieces like that. So you're just doing the best of what you can to make sure that like when we do get back and when we do get into whatever's going to happen, I haven't a clue really, but no one seems to know. But yeah. at least when we do come back to training, the lads are, are in, in decent shape and the first week of training doesn't exactly, you know, spike them through the roof from a, where you have the injury risk go up on them, you know? Right, okay. Come here, here's a question I wanted to ask you as well, and it's in that, it relates to that professional environment. So I struggled badly with my hamstrings all my career, and looking back on it, I kind of know now why I kept tearing it, because I, I never worked on my legs with weights. They weren't strong enough, so they were always breaking down. But someone like Michael Owen, right, who suffered badly with his hamstrings, professional athlete, in a professional environment, would have got all the right advice, would have, you know, got all the massages, all the recovery, all those kind of things, and he still you know, tore muscles. Now, I know you're not a physio, but you have expertise in the area. Do, are some people just prone to them? Yeah, I think if you look across, probably, you know, I obviously don't know the ins and outs of, of what happened there with him, but if I just take, a, a, I suppose, a helicopter view on it, he's obviously very fast, or he was very fast when he played. He started off pretty young. Uh, I think he said this himself, that, like, his volume of matches when he was, like, 17 or 18, if you compare it to a normal person, was, like, or a normal 17 or 18 year old was through the roof, you know. So that then, if you pick up a couple of of knocks, you know, and the the biggest precursor to injury or having an injury is having a previous injury in that space. So like, if you are somebody who's popped a hamstring before, that makes you X times more likely for it to happen again. So taking into account those things, if you were trying to prevent them, that would come down to you know somebody being well screened uh, in the case of getting their body moving and operating right in the right spots and the correct type of strength work that again you're not you know trying to bang a square peg into a round hole for that person needs and then from whatever from a rehabilitation point that they get a safe return to like high speed and speed distance that they can check off all those things that they're going through a rehab process and then that kind of normal rehab process that they would go through would tend to be what people need when so most of the time when people get on and stay healthy like the stuff that gets you healthy is generally what's going to going to keep you healthy and you know younger players especially when they come up into an increased level of play and you probably would have known it yourself you see, you see people now coming out of under 20s or whatever and try to break into a senior team and they find it difficult because the level is just such a bigger jump and it's you know it's the same here but then if you're in a Premier League squad and all of a sudden you're required to play three, two or three games a week and you've been used to playing at a, at a youth level where there might be one game a week that's quite a jump you know Right, right, okay Come here before you go um there's a very unfair perception of me out there, Barry, that I wasn't a good trainer. So can you clear this up um, <laughs> for everybody now? We have it on record. <laughs> I cleared up for you, Willie. I never had any problems with you. Yeah, so there's no problem there. There you go. And I have a very good one rep match as well, Barry, don't I? <laughs> yeah, it was actually pretty good for you at the time there from what you were doing, yeah. There you go. That's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna clip this off now as proof um, from now on. If anybody throws it at me, Barry, thanks very much for taking the time for us. No problem, Willie. Yeah, good to hear from yeah. After the match with uh, you know with Marty Morrissey and the Marty squad, and you know the big the big thing for me yesterday. With, Hang on, hang, hang on, did you ask permission to do the Marty squad there? Well, uh, well, well, I, well, I didn't, but I, didn't, but I was only a special guest. Last Thursday, you asked me the same question when I started Bubbles, and I said I just on the Marty squad, because yes, I would have started Bubbles for that game yesterday.
that was the first I heard of Johnny Green coming back with the Galway squad. You know, I was, I was asked just in the Marty squad. Here, Damien, are you getting paid for Marty squad jokes on our show here? <laughs> That's three. Wait, no, I do, I, do, I, I do that completely voluntary. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> Alright, so to do it for Dan Fundraiser has just passed the 1.5 million mark of its 2 million total and Dan's father, a former teammate of mine, Niall Donoher, joins us on the line now. You've, geez, you've come a long way already, Niall. Well, well um, yeah, unbelievable in fairness. Um, it was going great and then... Um, for last weekend, um, I suppose from Friday on, um, it just it's the dude for Dan uh, GoFundMe and all that went bonkers, just exploded. So it's unbelievable what's going on. It's unbelievable. Like I mean, and so many different people are helping out. Like I mean, Gooch Cooper, Kieran Donaghy, Henry Shefflin, Joe Canning, Conor McManus. They're just some of the big GA names. But like I mean, your own club, Courtwood, Portlaoise GA. There's clubs all over the country. Like you know, raising fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand, and it's all adding up. I suppose. Yeah, it's uh, look. It's absolutely uh, amazing what's going on. I suppose um, Parker Neska kind of started this kind of four hundred k. Uh, 500k run that a lot of teams have latched on to now and last weekend I suppose Port Leash Courtwood all all the like good few clubs around the place like raised savage savage funds all together like and then I know around here it was an unbelievable buzz for everyone like we people come by the house here um, out doing their 5k's I've seen in Port Leash um, huge Huge crowds out, um, all enjoying themselves, and the fire brigade was out that evening. And as you say, then like big big GA names coming on board, and the thing is as well, they're not just giving away um, all boots that they might have played uh, a league game in or something. They're giving away like prize possessions, like Gucci's boots, all earned pair from I think all six, and you know all star jersey stuff that. You know, you you would just wouldn't give away like the the be price possessions. So like it's unbelievable what's going on. Yeah, and I suppose like uh, was it Seamus Coleman's donation that kind of turned the corner? Because like I mean, it's not just the money the likes of Seamus Coleman, Conor McGregor left a lot of money. It's not just the money they leave; it's the publicity you get from it, and the more people that know about it, the more people that will donate. I suppose. Yeah, well, Seamus has definitely um, brought huge light to it. Um, I know, I. I I hadn't any idea he'd done it. I I was in work. Um, I think it was the Thursday or Friday morning, maybe, and he had stuck in the donation. It was Easter weekend, yeah, I think the Friday, and um, people just started texting me and all that. Like, but um, for someone like Seamus Coleman, like I think he's one of the most respected uh, sports people in Ireland. For him, him to come on board, and then like in fairness, so we gave us a call Easter Sunday and just you know the most down-to-earth fella you'd ever come across like and he like he was openly honest like he said he he wouldn't stick his name to it if if he didn't think it'd get the traction that it would like you know he wasn't doing yeah. it out of anything only just getting more traction for it and he wanted to do it for us like you know so you know we couldn't we couldn't thank him enough so it was it was an unbelievable gesture like 15,000 yeah. is huge money to anyone like yeah, it's incredible. And was there a direct link to Seamus or did just Seamus just see this going on and wanted to help? 
Um, well, us personally, we wouldn't have a direct link. Um, you know, I think from what we got, I think uh, maybe a colleague friend of Seamus's wife had passed it on to her and the two of them were checking it out one night and then he just kind of um, came on board with it. Like, he just, you know, he donated. Like, we had no inclination that this was coming down the line from him. Like, so for us that morning when we seen it, like, it was a massive shock. You know, yeah, geez, he's really. I think he really uh, kick-started it. So it's fantastic the way it's after gathering so much momentum. Come here, anybody who's listening to the show here that might not know about Dan's condition or you know what he needs, maybe just fill them in there. Um, sure. So Dan's condition um, is uh, SMA, so spinal muscular atrophy. Um, it's uh, a muscle waste uh, wasting disease. So. When Dan was born, he was same as every other child, like, you know, up and up until three or four months. Um, Dan was doing the very same things as every other kid would be doing. Like he was trying to roll, he was lifting his legs off the ground, he was when he was on his front, he was lifting his head, he was starting to use his arms to push himself up. And then um he got sick shortly after that with um tonsillitis and we were in and out to doctors, hospitals and such with him like and he started to lose um them sort of things from then on and we were kind of told that look it was the illness. The illness kind of went on for six or seven weeks with him to throw it. Um and we just by the by the end of that we just weren't happy, like, you know, there was still we knew there was something going on with him because he was a bit floppy, but um we went up uh, to Temple Street with a neurologist and he knew from the minute he kind of picked up Dan that there was something wrong and he he couldn't confirm on the day the problem, but he said to us um, that he didn't think Dan would have the use of his arms and legs, um, you know, going forward. Like, so um, horrific news to, to get. Jesus. And then, um, you know, like we had to leave that day waiting on blood results and, you know, like not knowing what was coming down really down the track for us, kind of hoping that the tests would come back not as severe as that like, but um, in fairness to him, he got the results back in, I think, two weeks, which normally do take five or six weeks, but we were called back up to Temple Street then on the 6th of December and confirmed that he had um, SMA type 1, which is, you know, the worst worst type that you can have. So. Um, you know, today you'd never forget being told that about your child and like we were lucky enough to told us there there and then there was a treatment available in Ireland for him, you know, that would hopefully prolong his life expectancy, which without this would be twelve to uh twenty four months like. So right. um that's that was kind of where we were left, but he started his treatment and then obviously this we found out about this this new treatment, Zolgen uh Zolgensma. So look, that's what all the fundraising is for at the moment. Like it's a groundbreaking treatment in America and look everyone's helped so far. We're we're well on the way to hopefully getting done this treatment like. Yeah. And the important message as well to send out to people is that you're you're against the clock because um Dan hasn't use of his legs now and the longer this goes on, you know, that could get worse. 
Yeah, so it's a two, you have to get this treatment for your two years of age. So Dan turned one on the 28th of um, March there. So, yeah, look, time is taking the, the earlier, like we've seen amazing results with this, in, like in America with kids who get it from birth, get the treatment, like they're the very same as a normal child. They're out, like, doing everything, running around, um, doing the whole lot. But the longer this goes on for Dan um, you know it doesn't have it obviously won't have, he's after losing so much already that it doesn't have the same effect like so yeah the earlier and it, the, you can't, the sooner you can't you can't turn back the clock you know it can just stop it you know stop it from progressing I suppose from the point you get it yeah and look like it has shown that like the protein that Dan isn't producing at the moment like it can start producing again so like, look, we're not saying that Dan's ever going to walk or, you know, anything like that, but it's going to give him the best chance of having the best best life possible, whether that is just Dan being able to, like, do normal things in a wheelchair or whatever, look after himself as best he can. Well, you know, this is this is Dan's best chance at, like, having the best life. So, you know, this is this is why I think everyone has has really come on board like you know yeah no it's absolutely brilliant and I believe there's a Late Late Show um, appearance tomorrow week in the pipeline as well um, yeah well we, we like that um, we've, we've been so busy but that's we were told that there um, yesterday evening so yeah I think I think that's in the pipeline and Look, there's there's huge interest in it at the moment, and it's great because it's it's pushing on the story, and it I think it's it's a it's a good news story, as in like everyone's putting their shoulder to the wheel, and the whole country and further afield are all coming together. Like, and I think I think everyone wants to do their bit now, so you know that's why there's huge interest in it at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So if anybody isn't involved with a club that's doing anything, they can donate on Dan's GoFundMe page, right? So just search Do It For Dan and you'll be able to yeah. get to that. Yeah, that's it. And sure, look, there's there's loads of stuff going on. There's loads of stuff online. Um, there's people coming up with stuff the whole time. So um, just, just want to thank everyone there so far that's doing all the stuff and everyone that's involved. And look, if they can't, if they can't donate, donate just share it and like it and spread the word for that that's all okay listen brilliant stuff Niall thanks very much no bother well all right, great stuff from Niall there. Like we said, if you want to donate um, to the Do It For Dan campaign, just go on to GoFundMe.com uh, and search Do It For Dan. Um, leave something if you can. But like what Niall said, if you don't, if you can't afford anything, share it, retweet it, like it, you know, get the get the word out and try and get, we'll try and get them over the two million. Um, right, that's all we've time for this week. We'll be back on Monday with some old All-Irelands for you. Talk to you then. Good luck. When I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So I opened up. We were only the small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the breaks when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of for today because, like, I'm hard, I'm heartbroken. <laughs>
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.